Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Hey, Connect. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Chris. I get to serve on the team here. And I'm excited you decided to join us today because today we're kicking off a new teaching series called Transform. Because what do we want? Well, we want to be in better shape. So we watch what we eat. We exercise often. We want to be better friends. So we'll grab coffee with a friend or FaceTime them or maybe even hop on a plane and travel across the country to spend time with them. We want to be better spouses and better parents. So we'll follow that influencer on Instagram and we'll do whatever they say. We want to be better at our jobs. So as we drive around town, we'll listen to a leadership podcast. We want to be better Christians. So we attend church or watch our favorite preachers online. You see, Whether it's a life hack for this or a habit change for that, we want to level up our lives however we possibly can. And I would say that transformation is a good thing and something that God wants for us too. But I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Have you ever felt like you're just stuck in a a cycle of self-help? It's like you keep trying, you keep trying the thing that you're being sold, but it's just not working, at least not the lasting change you hope for. Or maybe, do you ever feel like your relationships need a reboot? You love the people in your life, but as hard as you're trying, you keep blowing it. And they're hurt, you're hurt. If you're just plain tired of trying so hard, or you're, you're tired of being sold something, I get it. Like, I've been there too, and I've got good news for us. God wants us to experience transformation. That's his will for us, and his word reveals the way. We see this in the book of Ephesians. And we see that while he invites us into a transformed life, it's a life that's way better than any commercial could ever sell us on. So if you got a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, because over the next seven weeks, we're going to be slowly making our way through Ephesians to discover and realize and experience the transformation that God offers us in Christ. If you need a Bible or a place to jot down notes, you can, of course, follow along in our app. We've also got free Bibles in the back. Now, as we prepare to read God's Word, let's pause and let's pray, and let's just ask God be the one who speaks to us now. Lord, we come before you, eager to hear from you. So would you please speak? Would you speak through your Word? Would you speak through this message? Would you speak to each of us individually? Would you help us to see you more clearly? And would you also help us to see ourselves in relationship with you more clearly too? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians, it begins as follows. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the opening to this letter, we see a couple of things that we need to keep in mind as we continue reading the rest of the letter, not just today, but in the weeks to come. You see, this is a letter written by the apostle Paul. 
Now, if you aren't familiar with Paul, Paul wasn't always called Paul. He was previously called Saul. And in Acts 9, we see his conversion story. It's a pretty radical conversion story. He's on his way to Damascus, where he's going to imprison Christians there, purely because they're Christians. And he thought he was honoring God in all of that. Well, on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him in a bright light and calls out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Fast forward three days, he's in Damascus, and God sends Ananias to come talk to Saul. And he explains the gospel. And, and Paul, Saul, excuse me, decides to follow Jesus. Wholeheartedly follow him, gets baptized, the whole deal. And then he, he goes out and he starts to preach the gospel even. Jesus radically got a hold of Paul's life. So much so that his name did in fact change from Saul to Paul. God made that name change for him. Because this was a new man. He had experienced Jesus and it changed everything for him. He went from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel and planting churches. That doesn't just happen. But it did for Paul. And the good news when we look at Paul's story is that as bad as you or I may feel about the sin in our life, there is no life too far gone for God. Jesus can change our lives too. And when he changed our lives, others will be impacted by it as well. Now, Saul, Paul, excuse me, is writing to these holy people, God's holy people in Ephesus. Well, who are God's holy people in Ephesus? Ephesus uh, is not a, a city that you, we could go visit today, though it is in the southwestern corner of Turkey. At the time Paul was writing this letter, Ephesus was a major commercial port. It was on the Aegean Sea. 250,000 people lived there or so. That's a, few, that's a few less than what live in Douglas County, okay, to give you some perspective. Quite a few people. Now, back then, it was actually like the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. I mean, this is a pretty prominent place. And as prominent as it was, it wasn't exactly known for God's holy people. You see, Ephesus was filled with a bunch of pagans. They worshipped upwards of 50 gods and goddesses. Most famously, they worshipped Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility, magic, astrology. There was this temple there, the temple of Artemis. And at this temple, they would prostitute themselves as an act of worship to the goddess Artemis. More than just a, a worship location, though, this temple was like an economic engine for the city. Okay? The shrine, the Artemis shrine, would draw tourists and pilgrims from all over, and they would come to see it and to worship. And people would deposit money at the temple because they presumed, hey, who, who would steal from a sacred space like that? So there was, a, there was an economic component to this. Now, there isn't much left of the temple. You can see that in the picture. Now, but you know what? In its heyday, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a, this was a big deal in a prominent place. But as you could gather, the Ephesians weren't exactly God's holy people. 
They, they'd latched on to this Greek goddess Artemis, and it wasn't, it wasn't until God sent, the one true God, sent Paul and Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus to preach the gospel, that they even knew that there was another way. In fact, Paul was there for a couple of years, and he preached, and it upended the city, so much so that the way, the, that's what the Christians were called there, that the way resulted in a riot in the city because they were calling out this pagan cult in the worship of Artemis, and the gospel was upending the whole economic engine in the city. And as the gospel upended that culture then, it upends our culture now. You see, uh, while, while we look back on, on Ephesus in the first century and in, in their worship of Artemis, it can, from our perspective in the 21st century, it can kind of feel dated, antiquated. I mean, worshiping at the feet of a statue, really? But while we don't go to a temple to worship, we worship nonetheless. And, and an idol is not just any statue or figurine or shrine. An idol is actually anything. It can be anything, even good things that we elevate to an ultimate thing if that thing is not God. You see, whatever our ultimate pursuit in life, if, if it's not God, Scripture calls that an idol. In, in our day and age, where self-discovery and self-expression are all the rage and self-actualization is the goal. I would propose that self is the god of our age. And yeah, you know, we don't live in an ancient culture that's teaching us what to think, but our culture is loud and clear. Find your truth. Do you. We don't go to temple to worship, but we sacrifice nonetheless. We'll sacrifice our time our money, our bodies, our relationship, because we're pursuing life, we're pursuing liberty, the, the ability to express ourselves, happiness, pleasure. And, and while we don't have a formal religious literature telling us the way of self, the self-help industry is doing just fine. It's booming. And I believe that as the gospel disrupted Ephesus in their way of thinking, in the first century, the gospel disrupts what we worship here in the 21st century. So what is this gospel that's so disruptive? Well, Paul lays it out in the verses that follow. So you want to follow along. We're in verses 3 through 14. Paul explains the gospel this way. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, 
to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul continues, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, marked in a seal with, marked in him, excuse me, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's a long section of scripture. And what is eight sentences in two paragraphs in the English translation was one sentence in the Greek. When Paul was writing this and he starts sharing the gospel, he gets going. It's like he just can't stop. He just keeps going and sharing and sharing and sharing the goodness of God's grace in the gospel. And what is he focused on? He's focused on what is true of us in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, it shows up like eight times in this one sentence. Because it is all about Jesus. Now, what exactly has God blessed us with in Christ? Well, here's a quick list pulling from Ephesians 1, the verses we just read. In Christ, God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Like, like that's been God's plan from the very beginning. In Christ, God has adopted us into his family. He's always wanted us to be his sons and daughters. In Christ, we're redeemed and forgiven through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. In Christ, God revealed his will to us. His will to unite everything under Christ. In Christ, God chose us and predestined us to be part of his plan and his purpose and his will. Like, we're not an afterthought. We're not a maybe to God. When we hear and believe the gospel, we are saved and redeemed in Christ. Is anyone just like a little bit excited about that? Because when Paul started sharing this, he couldn't stop himself. He just kept going and going and going. It's the longest sentence in Scripture. And it's all about the gospel. And it's all about the blessings that you and I have in Christ. When I was 14, I saw Jesus clearly uh, in a way that I hadn't before. And it happened to be at a church plant. And he changed me in such a profound way that I went from wanting to make a name for myself in sports to wanting to lift high his name with my life. I went from wanting to, uh, to not be at church to wanting to plant a church one day. Why? Because of Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, he changes us. He changed Paul. He's changed me. He can change you. Now, one of the concepts in this passage that uh, you, you read it and you just can't help but have a discussion. And by, by a discussion, I mean a debate. Is what, what does Paul mean when he talks about God choosing us, when God predestines us? What does Paul mean by that? And scholars like to call this the doctrine of election. 
Countless books have been written and lectures given on this subject. We could drown in the sea of content out there on this doctrine of election. And in my classes at Colorado Christian University and at Denver Seminary, whenever this topic came up, election, I can guarantee you a heated debate ensued every single time. And as much as you like a political debate around the family dinner table at a holiday, I enjoy the theological debate of election. And it's not because I think it's unimportant. No, it's very important. But I've only ever witnessed the debate around election result in hurt and division, which is the opposite of what Paul intended in this passage. So just because this subject is hard for us to wrap our minds around, it doesn't mean that we should avoid it or ignore it, but it also, we need to approach it humbly. Because what Paul's thrust in this passage is our unity as the church in Christ, and that God would be glorified in it. So with those goals, our unity and God's glory being our focus, let's just talk about what is this whole debate around theological election. Simply put, election is about selection, okay? We see God's election or selection throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see God choose Abraham. And he says, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna be a blessing to the nations. And Abraham, his family became the Israelites, God's chosen people. In the New Testament, we see all the nations that God promised to bless through Abraham blessed through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Now, we get to know God because of Jesus. Now, historically, when it comes to this whole doctrine of election, Christians, all Orthodox Christians, those who have an accurate true understanding of what God teaches us in Scripture, we agree on three things. We agree on way more than three things, but when it comes to this, we agree on three things. That God's election flows from His grace. This is a gracious act of God. We agree that people have moral agency, and we are responsible for the choices that we make. We're also responsible for our actions. And we're part of God's people, the church, by God's grace, through our faith in Jesus. So that's what we agree on. Where does the debate ensue? The debate historically has been around a, a couple of different things. Typically, there are two camps uh, in how they understand this idea of God choosing, predestining, or electing people. All right. Some theologians, like Augustine and Calvin, they believe that, that God elects a certain number of people unto faith a.k.a. there are a certain number of individuals that God predecided are going to be saved. And the shadow side of that is that there are a certain number of individuals who God also predecided who will be damned, who will go to hell. The other side of the debate likes to talk about how God uh, elects in view of people's faith. There are theologians like Arminius and Wesley who believe this. Basically, the belief is that God wants all to be saved, and he offers salvation to all people who choose to receive that by faith in Jesus, all by God's grace. And then there are actually some other theologians, like N.T. Wright, modern theologian, who likes to look at the biblical narrative and the text, and he, he wants to refocus the whole conversation. 
typically the conversation has been around how does God elect? But he wants to focus the conversation around the purpose of this elect community of God. This, this people that God chose. Why are they chosen? Well, they're chosen to be holy. They're chosen to reconcile the world to God. Like joining God on mission. They're part of his plan. They're part of his purpose. They're part of the gospel going forth. All right? There's not going to be a test on this, okay? And we're almost there. But for some, this has been totally avoided in church. For others, you read it and you're like, this is confusing. And then there's still some who are like, I don't really care, honestly. And you know what? I love that we're all in the room together. And, and I just want to share, as I have read and studied and had the classes in all of this stuff, what, where I generally land is more with the N.T. Wright understanding. I find elements of, of all of them very interesting, intriguing, compelling. There's an element here for me. It's just a mystery. I will not, I also believe we will not fully understand what this means until we're with, heaven, with God in heaven one day. And then we can ask him all about it, and he can bring a lot more clarity to what is a little confusing and can be divisive in the church. So, so instead of focusing on how God specifically elects, which ultimately is up to God, we aren't the judges of that, okay? God's going to do what God's going to do, and he can do it however he chooses to do it. That's my, my opinion. Why he elects, why he chooses a people for himself that's important. That's really important. And that does change how we live our lives. It changes how we live, how we interact with each other, how we love the one far from God. It profoundly changes us. So in all this, I hold tightly to my belief that God is sovereign, that God knows all, and that God in his grace offers us a relationship with him through Jesus. And what I love about our church is that at Connect, we've got people on this side of the fence and people on this side of the fence and people who frankly don't care because they're just trying to figure out, like, is Jesus worth following? We've got everyone in the room. We've got everyone in groups. And I love that because our goal is not to be right about election. Our goal is unity in Christ and to glorify God. That's what our goal is. And we can learn a lot from each other along the way, but it requires a lot of humility to learn and to seek what God says in Scripture. What is clear? What's a little confusing? Let's hold to what's clear. Let's hold loosely to what's confusing, and let's learn and grow along the way. Now, some of you have loved this whole little deal, okay? You're like, wow, why don't we do more of that? Because not everyone loves it, okay? But if you want more, and you want to you know, go a little deeper and better understand this doctrine. We've got a, a short article that's linked in our app. We'll also send it out in the weekly email this week. You can do a little bit deeper dive. There's some scriptures linked there that you can dive into and study and better understand. For the rest of us, let's just keep the conversation going. Not because we're going to fully figure it out this side of heaven, but because we want to know God more and we want to love one another well and we want to grow in our relationship with each other and with him. So, let's zoom the lens back out, and let's take a look at, at this pursuit we have for transformation. You see, on our best day, that's a healthy pursuit. On our worst day, it's idolatry. But transformation, our transformation is a desire that God has for us. But what strikes me in this passage, this whole passage, 
is that the focus isn't on ourself. We like to make the whole conversation about transformation about us. But this passage is not primarily about us. It is about God and God's work in our lives, his transformative work. In, in a work that is not the end goal isn't just our transformation. It's ultimately his glorification. God's got a bigger thing going on here. We're a part of that. And it makes me think that, you know, at times what we can do is we can put the cart before the horse. We make transformation the all in all. A better self is the ultimate goal, but that's not the ultimate goal in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that God is working, he's changing, he's, he's working, and he's in, he is bettering his people, but it's not just so that they're better. It's ultimately so that he's glorified. So I'll sum this all up this way today. God's will for us is transformation in Christ for our good and his glory. That's what we're going to be fleshing out, not just today, but in the weeks to come, because that's what Ephesians is all about. This is the gospel. God's will for us is transformation in Christ for our good and his glory. And Paul's response to this good news, this gospel, should inspire our response to this good news. So let's continue in verses 15 through 23. He says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In light of the, the Ephesian believer's faith, Paul thanked God, remembering these believers in his prayers. He's thanking God. And then he asked God. He asked God for a couple of things. He asked God to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would actually know God better, that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and they would know God better, and that God would open their, their eyes to this hope that they have, this inheritance they have, this power available to them in Christ. That's what Paul's prayer was. That's how he responds to the gospel. Excuse me, the gospel. So, in light of the gospel, in light of this good news of Jesus, that we have all of these spiritual blessings available to us in Christ, may we be a people who, like Paul, throughout Ephesians 1, praise God for his grace. Let's be a people who praise God for his grace. Like, instead of debating the nuances of God's grace, let's praise God for his grace. Instead of strolling in late to worship, we, we, we are people who arrive early. 
we get our coffee, we check our kids in, we catch up with our friend, and then we're in here eager, ready, because when, when worship starts, our heart quickens. We get excited, we're eager to worship together. Uh, we, can't, we can't keep Jesus to ourselves. Like Paul, once we start sharing Jesus, it just like comes out. We just keep sharing and sharing. It's, a, it's an eagerness, it's a joy to share the hope we have in Jesus. So whether we're around the dinner table or at the water cooler or, you know, between sets at the gym or wherever we find ourselves, we are, we're looking for opportunities to share Jesus with those around us. Now, in light of the gospel, we also give thanks for Jesus and fellow Jesus followers. Yes, we pray with each other at group. And what if we prayed for one another when the Holy Spirit just brought each other to mind throughout the week? Like, how cool, like, you're, you're driving to work, and so-and-so comes to mind, and you just start praying for them. Maybe, maybe you even hop on the phone, and you call them, and you pray with them over the phone. I bet Paul would have loved that kind of technology. I mean, here he is, he writes a letter to the Ephesians saying, look, this is what I'm praying for you. So maybe we call, maybe we send a quick text saying, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you today. Whenever I receive a text like that, it's just, it's an encouragement to me. So I have to imagine it's an encouragement to others. Like Paul, we're going to be a people who praise God, who give thanks, and ask the Holy Spirit to help us know God more. Books are nice. Podcasts are inspiring. But as followers of Jesus, we have the same Spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead, who inspired the human authors of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit of God in us. What if, what if we just ask the Holy Spirit to help us know God more? What if we ask the Holy Spirit to help our kids know God more? What if we ask the Holy Spirit to help our group members know God more? Friends, transformation is possible. It is so possible. It is offered to us in the gospel, but this is not a gospel of self. Paul, Paul didn't go from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel and planting churches because he had some good me time on the way to Damascus. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus who radically transformed him. So we want to be better friends. We want to be better spouses and parents. We want to be better employees and employers. We want to be better Christians. And there is no amount of self-discovery or self-expression that is going to lead to the transformation available to us in Christ. It is in Christ that we are chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed. We're just, we're starting to see it in chapter one. We're going to see it a lot more fleshed out in the weeks to come. There is really good news for us, and it is offered to us in Jesus. Now, as great as our transformation in Christ is, our transformation is not the end goal. It is a means to a greater end, to, to someone greater, his praise, the praise of his glorious grace. So, God's will for us is transformation in Christ for our good and for his glory. This is the hope that we have 
It's the beginning of the transformation story for us, and it's the beginning of the journey. So I hope you join us next time as we get to talk about the connection available to us as well. But between now and then, know this, we are a people who praise God, who give thanks, and who ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God to us all the more. Lord, we come before you asking that very thing, uh, that, you would, that you would reveal yourself more to us. And, and as you reveal yourself, would we worship you all the more? Would we be more in awe of you? Would you help, Holy Spirit, take the, the focus off ourselves, and instead would we be captivated by Jesus? And thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for offering us forgiveness, for inviting us to be part of the family of God. So would you work in us? Would you make us a holy people? Would you make us a a people who, who join you by your power to reconcile the world, to share this good news with those around us? We ask this for your glory. And we ask that we would see your kingdom come here in South Denver as it is in heaven. In your name, Jesus, amen.